1: Good morning, everyone. On this lovely Thursday morning on the 22nd of July, I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for Carmen LeBurge for one more day as she is on vacation. I... Did hear Paul Perot, You're in studio with me, obviously this morning. Good morning to you and good morning. I did hear that you heard from Carmen. It sounds like she has emerged from the wilderness, John the Baptist <laughs> style, and she is she has technology at her fingertips again. So she was texting you saying all is well, from what I understand. Yeah, so. she
0: says she's looking forward to a nice shower and some coffee and such. But yeah, she and she and Jim are out of the wilderness, out of the out of the mountains, and back to civilization.
1: Yeah, I don't know how it is for you, but I, I love the idea of. Cam- Camping and, and sort of forging forth into the unknown of the wilderness. But by the time I lay down on the roots and the rocks with the ants crawling all over me, it, it, the, the romance of it, I admit, gets a bit lost. My idea of, of a really good camping trip involves climate control and walls and a television set. And the problem is, is that that doesn't seem to be camping any longer uh, yeah, at that well, point. Yeah, like when Jessica
0: and I were... On our vacation, we did a lot of camping at hotels. I like that.
1: Yes, a camping at hotels is—I guess—glamping is what some people might call that. Okay. It's like well, a, call what you want. The glamorous camping. I love it. Well, we were with some friends last night. I wanted to get started with all of you as fellow followers of Jesus that are part of this program, a day in and day out, listening to Carmen, listening to the different guests that come on. With a thought from last night, I was with some friends of ours, some dear friends. Uh, she and he are mentors of Hallie, my wife, and me, and have been for the better part of thirty years when we worked under them in. in in a church many years ago, and uh, they brought up a pretty interesting uh, practice in sort of the ancient Jewish faith that I was not aware of. Is that ancient Jewish children, or ancient um, in, the, in the ancient Jewish faith, the children on their first day of learning Torah, and Torah is the first five books of the Bible, right. and of course it's the most sacred part of the of the Jewish Bible for their practice, that they would uh, often give the young children on their first day of opening the scriptures a little bit of honey on the lips to sort of sweeten the taste of mm-hmm. Torah for them. And, and it was only just a taste. It's not the fullness of Torah. And, and we often are with guests and we're offering cover, uh, often covering topics here on the morning show that we can't maybe get into the fullness of everywhere we want to go. But right. we thought about it. There's, there's just that beauty of a taste that day in and, and, and day out, you and Carmen get up in the morning. Sometimes I'm obviously here too. all the people that are part of this faith. Radio family that are listening at these hours, we get up and we get a little taste. That, that's my hope for today as we talk with Ben Johnson, uh, as we cover some different things about uh, walking through the scriptures in the second half of this first hour and the different guests. I hope we get a little taste of honey. On mm-hmm. her lips, it won't be the fullness of any of these topics, no. but boy, there's really a good reason to get up and have a taste every morning like this. It's a sweet, it's a sweet practice, uh, you know, in terms of a pun thing. Yeah.
0: yeah, back on uh, back on Monday when I was hosting, one of the guests I talked to was Justin Early. Yeah, and he had the he's part of the Common Rule, and one of the things he talks about is Bible before. Phone, because so we're, you know, we get out, maybe we even use our phone as our alarm. And right. so what's the first thing we grab in the morning? It's
1: usually our phone these our days. Our phone. Absolutely. Well, okay,
0: set that aside. Grab the Bible first and read that before you start perusing the internet and check your emails and see who texted you overnight get that first taste with God in the morning.
1: I think that's a great way to start. So thanks for joining us this morning. Now here on Mornings Without Carmen, I'm Peter Kapsner, filling in again for one more day. And I hope as we walk through the next two hours together that it is a sweet taste of honey on your lips. Ben Johnson, up next.
2: Am I right? My right?
1: So delighted to be joined by Ben Johnson, regular contributor to Mornings with Carmen, joins us every Thursday morning here right at the front of the show. And we are just talking a little bit about the sweet taste of honey. Ben, you uh, do such a good job just leading off on these Thursday mornings and bringing that sweet taste of honey of, of the beautiful kingdom. I just found that a really compelling example. I don't know if you've heard of that practice, but I just thought, oh, this is brilliant.
2: It is a brilliant practice, and as you say, I mean, the, the word of the Lord is sweet to our taste, it's sweet to our soul, it brings salvation to us, and it's, uh, it should be something that we enjoy, that we relish, uh, that we turn over. The, the scriptures are our spiritual food, and uh, they're not just our spiritual food, but they bring us our spiritual delight, which is our Lord.
1: Yeah, indeed. Well said, Ben. Well, so much to get to this morning. You do such a good job observing what's going on and the relevant things in our culture that are going to impact us as believers. And uh, I was a little troubled, I have to confess, with uh, some of what I'm seeing related to COVID information. The government's uh, desire to get forth a certain version of COVID information and then also using the large social media platforms to either censor versions of COVID information that they don't like, but also then promote the versions of COVID information that they do like. And I know this is a terribly controversial subject for many, and there's a lot of different viewpoints that all of which are are worth at least wondering about and paying attention to. But I think what was most troubling about it is this was the kind of thing that it seems like I would have read about in the Soviet Union growing up, where there was just such an intersection of trying to control uh, the press, this intersection between the political realm and and the freedom of the press. That would have been 1980s, 1990s Russia. And here we are today. And it seems like we're kind of on that track a little bit.
2: Yeah, and uh, all the more so because you know, this isn't just for the press or just for the media. This is the way that you communicate with other people. So it's it's not simply the way that the press communicates with you, but it's the way you have the ability to make your own message heard. Uh, the the government, and, and we're speaking here specifically of the Biden administration, but uh, Surgeon General Vivek Murthy wrote a 22-page report on uh, the health threat of misinformation. Now, we, of course, we've we've talked about the health threat of COVID-19. It's very real. And, uh, you know, we should take all the necessary precautions that we can to avoid getting that and to avoid the spread. Uh, So I I think that there's a very good case to be made to to take all of those precautions. However, when it comes to the ability of people to say, uh, I don't want to take these precautions or I have questions about these precautions or I heard about this. Can you tell me if this is true? Uh, We ought to entertain those questions, because, as you said just a moment ago, it's a very complicated topic. People have a lot of different points of view on the matter, and people should be free to express themselves uh, to make their viewpoints heard and to seek information and to have an exchange of information and find the best information uh, but instead, what you have is the uh, the government of the United States saying we want certain information to be taken off of the platform altogether so you know uh, Surgeon General Vivek Murthy has talked about uh, bringing pressure to bear on different uh, different kinds of social media. He said that social media should crack down on people who, quote, unquote, harass people. If those people have been given misinformation, that they should, quote, amplify accurate voices like the government and journalists and crank down the voices of other people who are not as well, well well-informed, so-called. And uh, first of all, the idea of the government reading our, our messages one way or the other or Influencing social media platforms to silence voices that it doesn't like is incredibly chilling. First of all, if they can do it on this topic, uh, then what topic can't they do it on? Uh, we've already heard health officials talk about how certain ideas can create a public health crisis. So could that, uh, could that apply someday down the road to, uh, let's say, that they believe that if you reject the idea of uh, same-sex marriage, for example, on biblical grounds, or you reject certain kinds of lifestyles or behaviors, that that negatively impacts the mental health of people who practice those behaviors. And so therefore, people who hold those objections, even if they're based in Scripture, even if you're quoting Jesus himself, could it be that they'll turn down that voice someday? Uh, I think that that's a very real question. And then just the, the fact that uh, this has been such a contentious issue in and of itself. We remember some of the misinformation that's come out of the government itself. Uh, at one point, government officials were saying, Don't wear a mask. They can't help you at all. At different points, they've said, Wear two masks. Uh, and it's not that anything changed during that time period. What changed were the social conditions that they were looking at. They were afraid initially, they've admitted, that uh, people wouldn't have enough PPE for people who were in the healthcare industry. And so they want to make sure there wasn't a rush. People didn't go out and buy it all. And healthcare workers, frontline workers, were not affected negatively by it. So they told people not to do it once they were assured that uh, there was plenty for people who are in the healthcare industry, then they said, go stock up by several. Uh, So uh, you have that, you have hydroxychloroquine, which uh, a year ago was said to be something that would kill people who had COVID-19. Since then, peer reviewed studies have come out that have said uh, it doesn't cure it, but it does perhaps lighten the severity of it for some people. So you have this situation where what's disinformation one day is gospel the next, and the government shouldn't be coming in putting its thumb on the scale telling people that if you don't agree with our present version of truth, then you should be silenced on your own platform, your own network, your own Facebook page.
1: Yeah, you said so much in there, Ben, that I just, uh, that, those are some of my concerns. If, if we start going down this track and say, hey, for for public health benefit and, and reasons, we're going to go ahead and try to control the information flow, that that is a pretty slippery slope pretty quickly. And, and I think maybe my question for you at this point then um, is what, what's the role of the church in this, to be purveyors of, of thoughtful and fair-minded and balanced kinds of information? If, if we increasingly can't trust the information we see on social media platforms or some of the alleged news organizations and from the government, how, how does the church step into this void?
2: Well, it, It's a very complicated question, as you say, because there are so many issues where we can't, we can't necessarily trust the information we have. The church has one job, and that is proclaim truth. And it doesn't matter if that truth is favored or disfavored, whether the the powers of the beast say that we should uh, we should follow them. Uh, if that conflicts with the truth, then we hew to the Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. So we believe truth is a person. We proclaim that truth, and to the extent that we say anything that is true, we are participating in the revealed truths of, that God has. God has revealed truths in Scripture. He has revealed truths in nature. And to the extent that we uncover natural truth, then we are participating in the truth that God has revealed to us, and we're proclaiming that as a part of our mandate as well. But the, you know, obviously the church's most important job is to tell people, regardless of what happens, the changes and chances of this particular transitory life, what's really important is there is a God. He sent his Son into the world to save us. That man, Jesus Christ, died on the cross and rose from the dead. He's ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of God the Father, and he's coming back with judgment, and he's coming back in order to reward those who love him and place their trust in him. And I know that's we're up... the most important message.
1: Yeah, agreed. I know we're up against a break, but one more question on this before we change the topic. And thinking about that, I love when when pastors give sermons on the weekends that are, are really geared towards the Scriptures and, and are and are highlighting some of the truths of Scripture. I think we should use that time just for that purpose. But sometimes there are so many social topics, and you referenced two of them. One is what's going on with disinformation, COVID, all of, all of this about government and social media platforms. We have same-gender relationship conversations that just continue to blow up. Uh, are there other environments in the church, and, and is there a way to maybe give space to pastors to study these things? Uh, because pastors are so slammed all the time with so many responsibilities. Should we maybe try to lighten the loads and, and let... There'd be some study around these topics in different environments to address them besides a Sunday morning, but but to help shepherd people in these ways, because these are really tricky social topics, and they don't really lend themselves to a sermon.
2: They don't, and you're right. We should have uh, the ability for people to study these to know what it is the Scripture teaches— and uh, so I, I would say this is something that uh, pastors should know. They they need this information. Uh, they need to know what's happening with these issues, what the Scripture teaches, and then they need to be able to synthesize that and present it to their people. And uh, that can be done sometimes if if the Gospel itself touches some of these moral issues, obviously. That's an area of presentation. But for uh, a Sunday uh, morning, it may not be the best place. The Sunday morning is for the proclama- proclamation of the Gospel, so perhaps a Wednesday evening study, or a special class, a special seminar, a retreat on a particular topic, or an ongoing series of discussions where you simply say, what is it you want to talk about today? Let's study this. Give me your your questions. Every week we'll bring in an article, and we'll discuss it together once we've had, you know, we'll we'll read it one week, the next week we'll come back and discuss based on what we know, and uh, we will look at that from a scriptural point of view.
1: Great stuff, Ben. Let's step away for just a moment. When we come back, we'll we'll chat a little bit about uh, the government acknowledging that China did go ahead and succeed in hacking through one of our largest software and internet companies in Microsoft. Uh, And there's a pretty big hack and pretty big implications of that. So we'll check in on that next here with Ben Johnson. And I marvel almost every morning at what Paul Perot can find in this massive media song jingo bank that we have here in studio. You and I were talking a little bit about starting the day with the sweet taste of honey earlier today, consistent with the ancient Jewish practice of when they first introduced Torah to their young children, they they wet their lips with a bit of honey, so there's a sweetness of God's word. And sure enough, Paul Perot is able to find something around the sweet taste of honey. He's amazing.
2: He is the one-man jukebox of the air, and it's I, I
1: love it. <laughs> he is. He is indeed. I love it. Well, there's an article that you and I and Paul were, were kicking around back and forth last night that I hadn't seen as much on, but there's obviously a lot of cyber hacking going on back and forth around the countries of the world. It's sort of the, one of the new forms of warfare, and gaining information from another country and then controlling that information from another country really does put a country at, at a pretty big disadvantage, and it sounds like China did succeed in hacking through into one of our largest software internet companies in Microsoft.
2: Unfortunately, they did. Uh, You know, this took place in January. It was exposed in March that uh, there was a major hack of uh, Microsoft. And and of course, Microsoft, uh, we think of uh, maybe a company, but we're talking about their servers where they host information for tens of thousands of companies. So 30,000 different organizations ended up having their information hacked, uh, and as it turns out, uh, the, the uh, national security uh, industry, of course, we're talking about uh, in- intelligence agencies throughout, not just the United States, but all through the West, including NATO, the UK, Australia, Canada, uh, all of these came forward over the last few weeks, and especially this past uh, this past week, issuing statements saying that the hackers were, were based in China and worked at the direction of uh, the Chinese intelligence agency, something that's called MSS. That stands for the Ministry of State Security. So MSS directed these hackers uh, to get this information, it said that they were looking for information both uh, of a corporate nature so that uh, Chinese industries could jump ahead and they would have a leg up when they were competing with domestic industries in other countries, but they were also looking for things that had dual uses, so things that would aid, say, their military. Uh, and that's particularly concerning because i uh, Tensions are heating up in Hong Kong, in Taiwan, and our Sixth Fleet is right there in the South China Sea. We have our own, uh, obviously, geostrategic interests in that area. And at one point, we could very well see ourselves uh, in a a confrontation. Lord willing, that will not occur. But we could see ourselves in a confrontation. At a minimum, China is a a strategic competitor, uh, a rival, and they are not interested in our well-being. Now, the reason that this caught my eye was that uh, when President Biden was talking about this on Monday, uh, he said that China was not responsible for this necessarily. And uh, that contradicted what the intelligence agents in the government had said. Uh, And, of course, this was quite frequently a feeding frenzy in the past. But uh, multiple agencies said, yes, China is responsible for this. It's not the Chinese government. They outsource it to hackers in their own country. But uh, it, it makes you wonder a little bit Uh, If President Biden saying one thing and his intelligence agents uh, who presumably worked in his direction are saying something else, is he getting intelligence briefings? Uh, Is he remembering the information correctly that he's being given? Is he acting correctly on the information? Uh, But really the context that it came up in is when Russia did this not uh, very long ago, did the exact same thing, we applied sanctions to Russia. Now the Chinese doing it, we're not applying any sanctions. We're naming them. We have multiple nations around the country rolling out statements the same day, but they're not actually taking any action. And that's concerning. So is it possible that maybe President Biden is saying something because it favors China a little bit and he doesn't want a confrontation with China? If that's the case, and he's he's been known to do that, unfortunately, when he was vice president, he went to China and he brought up the uh, one-child policy. And his exact words were, we are not judging. There are some areas where government should judge And certainly the one-child policy was one of them when it comes to putting our information uh, in in harm's way and potentially uh, draining away information toward Chinese intelligence and the Chinese military. That's certainly another one.
1: Yeah, we just have a couple minutes left here, Ben. But I find it really intriguing what's happening among the state actors globally like this. And I I talk with people from China day in and day out during the week that are helping us with production of certain things or, or different technological kinds of things. Some of the nicest people that I know that are not necessarily working for the government, but clearly too the way the government treats the people in China. Uh, is really, really rough. So I I think we also have to acknowledge that I'm sure the United States is doing hacking into China on a daily basis as well. And so I think it calls to mind again, the situation that as the people of faith, as the followers of Jesus, it's one of those things where we participate and know what's going on with the government. But perhaps uh, we always have to be mindful to extricate ourselves from the government in terms of a way of life moving forward and that there's people's lives at stake. There's lovely people In China, that are being impacted, lovely people in the United States being impacted by these state actors. And as a church, we have to operate outside of that.
2: There was an excellent article by Tom Rogan in uh, the uh, Washington Examiner not that long ago where he was talking about uh, an intelligence briefing that he had gotten from someone who was the expert in China in uh, national intelligence affairs. And one of the things he talked about is the fact that uh, the army of the People's Republic of China. Primarily exists in order to protect the Chinese Communist Party, not to protect the people of China, per se. Uh, it's more of a private security force that happens to be enormous and that protects the government of the country, but not necessarily the people. Uh, one one thing that we should all remember as Christians, there are more Christians in China than there are in America. Yeah. Uh, So uh, one day, China may be the largest Christian nation in the world. Those people are being persecuted by their government, along with people of other faiths, because communism is a jealous God. Uh, So I always I always say on here, pray for the fall of China's Chinese communism. Pray for the fall of the Chinese Communist Party. Pray that the gospel will overwhelm that and replace that with a, a government that respects human rights, respects human freedoms, and that uh, allows the word of the Lord free course in order to evangelize that entire great, wonderful people. And if they did, the world, if you think of how great Chinese accomplishments and how great uh, their, their technological ability is, their, their impact on the world is now, imagine if that impact were challenged and changed and channeled the gospel.
1: No, here, here, Ben. Well, thanks for doing a great job, as you always do, getting into some of these important headlines and thinking about them from a Christian standpoint. That's not an easy job you do week in and week out, but I'm, I'm grateful for your stewardship of that topic.
2: Thank you so much. Good to talk to you again. God bless.
1: Yeah, always. Thanks, Ben. We'll let's take a short break and we'll do a, a little bottom of the hour news and we'll talk a little bit about how active participation in the church leads to greater flourishing in the second half of this hour. Some of the other headlines that caught my attention this morning as paul perot puts a whole series of news feeds on my desk i really appreciated this one a missouri boy breaks state fishing record set by his dad one of the great gifts that my dad gave me over the course of our lifetime together is he said you know uh peter i hope you go further than i ever did in the kingdom i'll take it this far and hand it off and keep going and, and, and the kingdom is always such a generational place so i love that idea but in this case uh, it wasn't necessarily about the kingdom it was however about Fishing, a 13 year old boy is breaking a fishing record set by his dad one year earlier. The Missouri Department of Conservation says that Robert Aderwin IV was fishing in a private pond when he caught a longer sunfish that weighs five ounces. Ooh, five five ounces. ounces, I know. That was a fish story. The department says the previous state record for a uh, uh, long ear sunfish was four ounces, caught by RJ's dad exactly one year ago. From the same pod. So he he definitely has scoreboard on his father moving forward. How fun. I know. I'm just kind of
0: going, you know, son, I want you to go further than me, but... Why would you take away my Guinness
1: record? Man, what's Uh, the deal here? Absolutely. There's certain things we want our children to go further. And other things (laughs) I know when I was starting to run and race against my kids or wrestle with them, I knew absolutely the day it was time to give that up. (laughs) So I'm sure many of you guys can sympathize with that too. Well, up next here as we uh, come back after a short break, we'll talk a little bit about uh, continued participation in the church really does lead to an increase in hope, uh, an increase in love, an increase in so many things that are related to our spiritual flourishing.
0: ever hear these words before? Everyone else does it. Why can't I? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Your children will be surrounded by families with different boundaries and privileges, but don't cave to their standards. And when kids under your roof complain about your rules on cell phones, church attendance, internet access, movies, dating, and anything else, discuss why you made the rules you did. Communicate your beliefs and the purpose behind your expectations. Then I suggest every year you revisit those privileges. Slowly let the rope out and allow more responsibility for your child. Even though your rules aren't always popular with teens, stick to your guns and communicate your expectations.
1: Looking to make positive changes in your family? Check out the helpful resources from Mark Gregston online at
2: parentingtodaysteens.org.
1: Welcome back to the show here on the 22nd of July. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for Carmen LeBurge, and I'm excited to invite John Plake into the show this morning as part of the American Bible Society, and there's been some pretty interesting research that they've come out with recently in terms of how engagement with the scriptures, how engagement with the church community really leads to a greater sense of well-being, especially during all of these crazy times of COVID and social unrest and everything we're seeing globally. And John, I'm guessing we probably shouldn't be surprised by this, right? The idea that God's beautiful scriptures, that the people of faith that form the body of Christ would really be the place that we would find hope and encouragement and flourish machine, uh, as opposed to some of the other things in which we engage in the world. Good morning, Peter, and and thank you for having me on the show. Um,
3: you know, I think we aren't really surprised. I think people of the Bible, people who are part of the kingdom of God, have for a long time experienced a tremendous amount of hope and help and strength from their engagement with Scripture and from their engagement with the Christian community. But what's new about these findings is that we're actually using ways of measuring human flourishing that weren't designed by faith-filled people. They weren't designed by people in a seminary someplace. They're actually designed by, um, by epidemiologists and, uh, and social scientists working at Harvard university's T H Chan school of public health. And so when they were trying to figure out, well, what does a good life look like, they came up with what they call the human flourishing index. And it's a wonderful index. It looks across six different dimensions of human flourishing. And what's fascinating is when we look at people who are most deeply engaged with God's word and deeply engaged with Christian community, they score higher than everybody else we've measured.
1: Well, and, and what were some of those metrics that they use? Like, how do we define flourishing? If we if we get a benchmark for saying we we see human flourishing as people experiencing this in their life or that, what what is the this or that? What are some of these benchmarks that's being used? Yes, this is a a fun bit of research. Um, But basically, they have six domains.
3: And the first domain of human flourishing is that they're just happy and satisfied with their life, which I think is not a bad place to start. It's not the whole thing. The second part, though, is mental and physical health as opposed to ill health. Third, having a sense of meaning and purpose in life you may have read the work by Brian Dick and Ryan Duffy. It was, uh, it was done under a Lilly Foundation grant a few years back, and they were looking at calling and a sense of divine calling in people's lives. That's what they're getting at here in meaning and purpose. Then character and virtue. So the, the idea that I'm a person who has strong moral character and, and I have a sense of, sense of being a good person. And then having close social relationships with others. And finally, financial and material stability.
1: And with those metrics, how does the engaging in the Bible day in and day out, as well as being part of the community of faith, what, what do we see that's unique about that? Clearly, you and I and so many of the people that join us each morning like this are, are people who are following Jesus. It wouldn't be a surprise that there's uniqueness related to the Christian faith. This is the only eternal kingdom, right? But but how could we sort of get into the data uh, and, and even on a granular level, what, what does it do day in and day out to our well-being or some of these different metrics to be involved in the scriptures, to be involved in a church community? Well, maybe it'd be good if we'd back up just a little bit and go all the way back
3: to January of 2020 when we did the first ever national baseline study of human flourishing. And we, we did that at American Bible Society. It actually got co-authored by researchers at Harvard in the Journal of General Internal Medicine, because we were the first people who ever did the research to do U.S. national norms. And so we figured out that on most of these scales, whether it's, you know, combined flourishing or happiness and life satisfaction, the domains we've been talking about, the average American was scoring somewhere around seven. All right. So look at then June of 2020, when COVID was really starting to make a serious impact, particularly in large metropolitan areas, and we saw those numbers begin to slide significantly. Now, they didn't slide so much in people's sense of character and virtue, but boy, close social relationships, happiness and life satisfaction, uh, those things just really, really went down. And then we've seen some national rebounding Maybe not quite to seven, but a little bit of signs of hope in January of 2021. Okay, so we think about seven being a good point of index. But when you look at people who are practicing Christians, and by practicing Christians, we mean people who say they are either Protestant or Catholic, they say their faith is very important in their lives, and they've attended a church service in the last month, either online or in person. When we look at that group of people their averages are up in the seven and a half to almost eight range on every one of these things but particularly they're doing great in meaning and purpose in character and virtue and in having those close social relationships that everybody wants and so we we saw that finding and we thought oh, this is good news for people who are engaged with the church but then we looked further and we looked at people who are deeply engaged with scripture Because what we realized was it's possible for people to go to church and kind of do church, maybe have a strong social network at church, but not be deeply connected to God's Word. But it's almost impossible in American life for people to be deeply engaged with God's Word, but not be connected to a Christian community of faith. And what we discovered was that people who are consistently interacting with God's Word are just blowing the doors off some of these scales well over uh eight for character and virtue eight for meaning and purpose so they're they're scoring an entire point this is a couple standard deviations high on character and virtue meaning and purpose and close social relationships so what all that boils down to in just like regular people language aside from all of the the jargon and the numbers is simply this americans who have deep roots in the bible and in Christian community have just shown remarkable resilience. It's not that they're not facing the same storms that everybody else is facing, but because of their active faith, they are being guided toward a better future that is filled with
1: purpose, satisfaction, and we could talk about separately hope as well. Great stuff, John. We're going to step away for just a moment, and when we come back, we'll continue the conversation here with John Plake from the American Bible Society about the intersection of engagement with the church, engagement in the scriptures, and our own well-being. And John, when we come back, I'm going to ask you a little bit about the role of financial health in our well-being, that at a certain point, it seems like it doesn't matter anymore, but... There is a nuance to that as well, which is that when people are in really lower income households, this is something that has to be addressed in the midst of all of this, too. So stay with us. More to come with John Plake of the American Bible Society.
0: Take me back to a preacher in a verse where they've seen me at my worst. To the love I had at first. Oh, I want to go to church.
1: It is about 13 minutes before the top of the hour. We're chatting with John Plake of the American Bible Society about the intersection of the scriptures and our engagement and participation in the church and how that impacts us in our well-being. John, in some of the show notes here that we're talking back and forth about, you referenced the idea a financial need as well. And there does seem to be a certain baseline where people need to have financial needs met before they can really experience greater flourishing in some of the metrics that you described. But then there's also this law of diminishing returns. Once you have enough to continue to have more and more and more it doesn't really help at all. And in fact, it probably takes away from it. So kind of walk us into some of the financial dimensions of this.
3: Yeah, that's a great question so one of the things that i think a lot of americans think because we have this notion of the american dream is that if we're living a good life or maybe living the good life um, that means we've got a high income we've got a certain amount of prestige we've got kind of these things that you that the paparazzi chase after and what we found really wasn't true um that Actually, the good life is more about these dimensions of human flourishing that we've been discussing. But we did want to know, well, what role does household income play here? And so we looked at low-income households, and these would be, for our purposes, households that earn less than $50,000 a year. Medium-income households earn from $50,000 to $99,000 a year and high-income households, $100,000 or more per year. And so, you know, these are kind of rough estimates, but they they worked well in our national polling data. And what we did is we kind of cut the human flourishing numbers based on those income levels. And what we discovered was that there was no significant difference in flourishing by income between middle-income and high-income households. In other words, for, for people who seem to have enough, flourishing wasn't deeply impacted by their level of income. Now, that's not true for the lowest income households in America. And I think that's something we need to pay attention to in the church, because there are people in America who have been deeply economically impacted by COVID-19 and other kinds of factors, and their quality of life is impacted there. They don't feel hopeful about their future. They don't feel in control. They don't feel like um, the next step that they take is going to help them achieve a future that they're desiring for themselves or for their family. And so um, it's not a straight line kind of a relationship. I think people need a certain level of income to know they can put food on the table, they can pay the rent, they can put clothes on their kids' backs. and, And then above that, money plays a diminishing role.
1: I mean, John, what's interesting about what you're suggesting there is that sometimes I can talk with other believers, and I've wondered about this myself, that we end up in this false dichotomy or false binary, false choice between helping people socially or giving them the scriptures. And at least at some point, at some level, we're talking about a both and we don't have a false choice between them, right? There is the social help that is just simply needed, but then there's also the biblical and community help that's needed alongside of it.
3: I think the example of scripture is really good to go back to here. If we look at how God set things up in the Garden of Eden, He had Adam and Eve, they had everything that they needed, they had a close social relationship with one another and with God, and this was paradise for them. They had purpose, they had work, they had all kinds of things that made their life very meaningful. And sin disrupted that, certainly broke our relationship with God. But throughout scripture, whether you're talking Jeremiah in the time of the Babylonian exile, who says, I know, God says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you a future and a hope. That's about more than just enough food to eat. And it's actually about more than their salvation, but it's about this sense of holistic flourishing. And in John, chapter 10, verse 10, uh, kind of a famous passage there where Jesus says, look, there's a thief. He comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I've come that you might have fullness of life. And so that's why we like the flourishing index, because it's so close to the things that Jesus talks about. It's not that he doesn't want us to have spiritual well-being. Oh, absolutely. But along with that, it's not high in the sky by and by, but it's also God wants to bless our lives today.
1: John, one more topic I want to get to you before we run out of time and, and changing it ever so slightly here is that I'm excited for the research that you're going to come out with sometime later this year about what you're finding in your state of the Bible story or your state of the Bible research that includes reports on how the the Generation Z, the, the young people that I'm working with week in and week out, I'm sure the kids and the grandkids of many of the people that are part of our Faith Radio listening audience, that, that how they understand the Bible and faith their views on and use of scripture among the church, the traditions, denominations, all of these kinds of topics, at least when I'm with young people, they talk about them differently than I do or previous generations do. They think about them differently. They wonder about them differently. They have a different set of questions. And so I'm curious if you can tease us with a a little bit of what you're finding in this research about the next generation.
3: Well, I can tell you a few things that we've already released in chapter three, When And for those who maybe don't know, just a little orientation, State of the Bible is being released one chapter per month. It started in uh, in June, or in May, rather, and it's going to be released all through the end of the year. They can get that by going to stateofthebible.org. It's a free download, so they can dig in more deeply there. In Chapter 3 that we released last month, we looked at kind of hope for the hurting. And we really looked at stress, trauma, and hope. And one of the key statistics was that Generation Z, and these are students, um, when we look at it, we're looking at 18 to 24 year olds because those are called Gen Z adults, but Generation Z reaches down to nine year olds. So my daughters are in Generation Z and um, they are really struggling with stress. In fact, they have the highest stress levels. Gen Z adults have the highest stress levels of any generation Uh, in America right now. And they also unfortunately have the lowest sense of hope of any generation in America. Now, if you work with college and university students as I have for many years and you have, you may have seen that COVID has deeply impacted them. Uh, it's interrupted their career pathways. It's interrupted um, their ability to pursue their college education or perhaps their chosen vocation. And so there's a, a sense in which they feel like they've, their life has been put on pause. And we're seeing that in student development work across Colleges and universities in America. And I think it's something we do need to pay attention to. Yeah. Coming up next month, we're going to do a deep dive into Gen Z. And that's going to be released in about 20 days from now. And we're going to be actually comparing Gen Z youth. And these are Generation Z respondents who are under the age of 18 to those who are 18 to 24. And we're going to see some really interesting differences in how they relate to the world, relate to the Bible, what they understand about the values that Americans tend to hold in common.
1: And and what are some of the things that you're finding with them in their sense of community and and the need for that to help bring that hope and purpose that they they are feeling a lot of angst? I think that there's a crying out generation and, and they don't even for sure know what they're crying out for so often. So is there, going back to our previous topic, is, is there research that's demonstrating if they're part of a community that really helps?
3: You know, we do see that when... Uh, Gen Z adults are part of what we call a spiritually formative community, and this is a, a community where Jesus is at the center, where they're talking about their faith and talking about their belief system, that they are actually healthier than students who are maybe languishing a bit and not being able to connect with others around their faith. Uh, the challenge is that we see a lot among students in the college age years that they build relationships around pop culture, or they build relationships around you know, their favorite sports team, they build relationships around surface kinds of issues, but they don't yet know and have good skills to build deep relationships about their faith in Jesus Christ and their journey with God through scripture. So those are areas where I think we can come alongside them, and we can model for them as older Christians, how do I connect with others about my faith? How do I talk about my faith? And how do I make my faith a part of my day-to-day life?
1: Great stuff, John. If people that are listening this morning want to find additional uh, information and and resources about the work, I know you mentioned it a couple minutes ago, but it's really worth uh, giving it one more time so that people can find you guys. Yeah, you can just visit us online. It's stateofthebible.org.
3: And the entire ebook is available for a free download there. If you just give us your email address, we'll let you know when every chapter comes out and you can kind of take it one bite at a time. There's a ton of information. We're so looking forward to future chapters about Generation Z, about being a good neighbor, about the Bible in the U.S. military, and key trends for 2021.
1: Great stuff. If you're looking for responsible, credible, and reliable research on what's going on with the scriptures and community, young people, the future, all of these different kinds of topics, again, go to stateofthebible.org, a great place to to find just uh, exactly that information. John, thanks again for joining us and have a good rest of the morning. Thank you, Peter. We'll take a short break and wrap up this first hour of the show on Mornings Without Carmen. Boy, Paul Pro, I loved that interview. Have you guys had a chance to talk with John before? Is that the first time he's been on the program? You
0: got the inaugural uh, talking to or you know, conversation with him.
1: I love that. I feel so privileged by that. He yeah. was uh, people that have responsible, credible research that's also accessible. Meaning that mm-hmm. when we click on it, it's not this like big, heady academic document that we have to sort of wade through and, and wonder about. Uh, he, he's brought that to the table, and I think for again for people that are listening this morning, stateofthebible.org, Uh, go there and you'll find some really great research about what's going on in the next generation and even what's helpful to bring back flourishing into this.
0: Actually, I want to highlight the fact that the American Bible Society, we had talked about this uh, Center for Faith and Flourishing that is now open in Philadelphia. They are the organization behind that. Uh, They are really talking about some of the core values that really help shape our country,
1: shape us as a people. Great stuff. Well, that wraps up Hour One. We'll uh, start Hour Two here in just a couple minutes. Stay with us on Mornings Without Carmen.